Good to see all of you. Good to see you too, Lou. Have a good class. <laughs> it is the day of our trunk or treat. It is different this year thanks to COVID and COVID protocol and all that. It will be a drive through event. And so if you have signed up to help, today's the day, tonight's the night. And so uh, we will be prepping for that most of this afternoon. Uh, and then the event will be this evening beginning at 6 o'clock. So I uh, do just want to let you know that uh, we prayed for Zechariah. He's very grateful for that. Uh, I pulled him over when we were praying for him because uh, he heard his name. And I said, they're praying for you, bub. He said, I said, that's a, that's a kind thing, isn't it? He said, yeah. So uh, uh, he... Uh, he bumped heads with the kid, and while the doctors that examined him said it was not technically a concussion because he didn't go unconscious, he had many of the other symptoms that go along with a concussion. And so um, he, just two to three weeks, uh, he doesn't get to do recess as normal and just uh, kind of monitor him, and, but he seems to be doing okay. Uh, Certainly a scary thing when your kid is just doing like the thousand yard stare and can't answer questions like, well, you know, which kid, what was the kid's name that did this and just, but he's doing better. And so we're praising God for that. Grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We will be reading beginning in verse 12 and our reading will take us into chapter 4 and verse 1 as we continue to walk through the book of Philippians, seeing how God has empowered us to rejoice, why there is cause for rejoicing. And uh, this section of the epistle gives us uh, further reason as to why we ought to rejoice. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of the living and true God. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love, and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let us pray. 
Help us, Father, to see our kingdom citizenship this morning through the text of your word. Not only help us to see our citizenship, but enable us to live up to that high and holy calling that you have placed upon each one of us. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. There have always been two cities, one earthly, one heavenly. Fifth century theologian Augustine wrote a classic work. It's called The City of God. And in this work, he captures this idea, outlines and contrasts the two societies. One society, one city is God's. It is the kingdom of heaven. The other society, the other city is the world. Writes Augustine, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. Now, Augustine got this idea from a text just like this, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul writes about enemies of the cross. This would be those who are citizens of the city of the world. And on the other hand, those who make up the kingdom of heaven. Those who are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly city. That's what Paul is writing about here. But again, it's always been the case that there are the people that are devoted to God. There are people who bow the knee to the one king, that is King Yahweh in the Old Testament, King Jesus under the New Covenant. And then there are those who make up the worldly city, the earthly city, and who walk as enemies of the cross. But what Paul says here is that kingdom citizens joyfully live and joyfully wait for their Savior to return. We joyfully live and we joyfully wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in these verses, Philippians 3, verse 12, all the way to 4, verse 1, Paul explains how the kingdom impacts our lives in the here and now while we wait for the there and the then. And he begins in verses 12 through 16. And he explains that we are, we do live in the earthly city, but we're not of the earthly city. This is akin to what Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John, how we live in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we live in the earthly city, and, and while we live there, we, he says here in verse 12, we have not already obtained this. And we are not already perfect. What is Paul talking about here? He, he has his goal in life, and it's the goal that every Christian ought to have. Back in chapter 3 and verse 9, to be found in him, that is to be found in Christ. To attain to the resurrection from the dead there in verse 11. And it seems to be this, that Paul is talking about how he's not already obtained it. He's not already at the end of all things, at the resurrection of the dead. The full and final completion of the experience of salvation that all Christians have. And that began 
when Christ Jesus made him, he made me, my, made me his own. Uh, verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That was the beginning of this experience of salvation. But when Christ returns, when he comes back, and again, this section is leading toward that in verses 20 and 21, Paul is saying, that's when I'll be perfect. I haven't already obtained it yet. I'm not already perfect, but I'm pressing on to that to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so in the meantime, again, he's not already obtained perfection. And the way that Paul writes this, he says, you know, I I didn't obtain it in the past, and and I don't presently have that perfection yet. And I'm pressing on. I'm, I'm anticipating it, though, at the final coming. Essentially, Paul is saying, I've not reached the end of the journey. I've not come to the end of the race. And judging by the fact that you are here this morning, you are not at the end of your journey either. You are not at the end of your race. You, just like Paul says here, we have not already obtained. We are not already perfect. Christ Jesus has made us his own. We experience salvation in the here and the now. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but we anticipate being found in him at the resurrection of the dead. And so, like Paul, we press on. In fact, he says it twice here in verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own. He repeats it in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. uses the same word in both verses. And it, it denotes this idea of how there is the object that is before him. It's in front of him. And he, with, with speed and with energy, he is in hot pursuit, moving toward that goal, moving toward that object. And here he styles the prize of the upward of God in Christ Jesus. That's the goal that is before him. The idea here of press on, it's also a, a hunting term uh, that would be used concerning the hunter in pursuit of game. And once the hunter uh, got his game, that was, that was the goal, and he accomplished it. And that's the idea here of Paul in pursuit of that goal. It was also a term for a foot race, to, to press on as, as one running in a marathon. And so Paul uses this term to indicate that his whole life is straining for, it is in pursuit of this final goal, this future goal, and he wants to overtake it, as it were, and and seize hold of it. And so he writes here that with single-minded focus, notice again verse 13, I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do. There's the single-minded laser beam focus of Paul that he has in mind here. One thing I do. He says, I forget what lies behind. He forgets his past. And that would include, as we saw last week, his Jewish pedigree, verses 5 and 6, that we walked through all those things last week about, here, here's my reason for confidence in the flesh, but, but that's all just uh, one stinking pile of garbage. I, I don't want that anymore. And so... Forgetting uh, what lies behind here. He, he forgets that. He, he forgets also the, his past as a church persecutor. And I'm sure that he is grateful to be forgetting of that uh, in, in terms of, of releasing it. Whatever 
whatever past failures, whatever past miseries had come to him, uh, even perhaps those part th- those parts of his Christian life that involved some failure, perhaps, or or some suffering, some misery. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting all of that. It is, it is a, a deliberate and continuous forgetting that Paul has in mind here because it's a present tense thing. He, he continues to put it out of his mind. Why? So that he can strain forward to what lies ahead. And this, again, probably more of the, the play on the word here, press on. Because, again, it was used in the foot race context. And, and the idea here of straining forward, it is the idea. You know when, when runners are, are finishing a race and, and there's the finish line and they will lean across it. That's, that's the image here of straining forward. The runner crossing the finish line. That's the idea here of Paul leaning forward, straining forward to what lies ahead. And again, he's got all this energy behind it, all this, this zeal and, and effort that he's putting into it to reach those last things, uh, those last day things, the resurrection of the dead, to be found in Christ, and, and all of this. And so, in the meantime, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. By the way, the word here for mature, same word back in verse 12 for perfect. It's not already perfect. And that, again, is talking about uh, the, the last day's things. Here, mature. And I think that's right. Uh, we've talked about how words, they're not univocal, they're equivocal. They're, they're, they derive their meaning based on the context in which they are found and the relationship to words around them. And so Paul here is saying, yeah, you, you can attain a certain level of maturity in this life, but as far as perfection goes, we are awaiting that for when Jesus comes back and so uh, those of us who are mature we need to think this way and in in anything uh, if in anything you think otherwise god will reveal that to you also only let us hold true to what we have attained and the idea here of holding true holding on it's this idea of walking in a line Uh, there's a a row in front of you and you need to walk and stay the course that's the idea of of continuing in and staying the course it will involve progress it will involve new levels of holiness and and maturity and 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 the thing is typically just about everything that is new is often protested people don't like new things people don't like change typically i'm sure when whoever made the first wheel in history i'm sure when they completed that, it was complained about. And how that it's going to cause ruts in, in the footpath or whatever, right? In the 1840s, farmers of New York's Suffolk County rebelled against a recent invention in their day. They actually went out and they tore up the railroad tracks. They put a torch to the depots and they caused wrecks by loosening rail lines. You see, they saw the iron horse as evil. They complained. They, they said it, the, the sparks that come off of this thing is setting fields ablaze and the, the bells and the noisy clatter. It's just it's, it's, a, it's noise pollution. It actually shocks the cows so that they're not producing milk and the soot 
off of these uh, engines is soiling our laundry. And so they protested. Decades later, people complained that the first cars spooked horses and were spewing dangerous fumes. All this resistance to progress, whenever there is something new, it is often protested. And I say this to illustrate the fact that when we attain new levels of maturity, new levels of holiness, don't be surprised if people protest. Don't be surprised that the world hates it when you look like Jesus, my brothers and sisters. That is par for the course. When we are living for our king, the world isn't going to like it. When we are living as citizens of the heavenly city, the earthly city is going to hate it. And so this is why Paul's exhortation is so important. We must press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Note, by the way, it's God's call. It is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But there is a prize awaiting us. There is a prize that is at the goal here, and that is the resurrection and the transformation of our bodies. And Paul is going to talk about that in verses 20 and 21. But before we get there, Paul is going to walk us through how we can identify citizens of the heavenly city in contrast to the citizens of the earthly city. And it focuses on two words here. One is examples and the other is enemies. There are examples and there are enemies. In verse 17 are the examples. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. An example here is worth imitating. They are worthy of our imitation. And so Paul exhorts these believers, he calls them brothers, siblings, in, in the family of God, keep your eyes on those who are worthy walkers, those who are following the example. Uh, the idea here of keep your eyes on, fix your eyes on them. Pay attention, careful attention, observe their behavior, contemplate it, and then follow the example. Seek to match it. John Robinson, in 1620, he gave this charge to the pilgrims that were uh, about to board the Mayflower for America. He said, and I quote, I charge you before God that you follow me no further than you have seen me follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If God reveals anything to you by any other instrument of His, be as ready to receive it as you were to receive any truth by my ministry, for I am verily persuaded that the Lord hath more truth yet to break out of His holy word. You hear what Robinson is saying. You have an example in me, and match it as far as I'm following Jesus Christ. And it seems like I've read that somewhere in here before as well. That's what This is essentially what Paul is saying. Imitate those worthy examples, those worthy walkers, as far as they're following Christ. You can identify kingdom citizens by their behavior. But that also means you can identify enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul goes on to talk about these enemies. And, and he, he writes through teared eyes his eyes are tearing up he's he's heartbroken over the fact that there are enemies that walk they walk as enemies they 
they tread an unchristian path by their behavior. Their conduct makes it evident that they are enemies. They've given themselves over to evil passions. They're seeking to avoid and evade the obligations that the death of Christ lays upon them in terms of holiness of life and following in Christ's steps. And so they're hostile to the cause of Christ. They are enemies, as Paul says here. And you know what's interesting is it seems as though these Philippian Christians would have known who they were because these enemies apparently sought to move around within Christian circles. Not unlike the wolves in sheep's clothing that Paul had warned the Ephesian church about back in Acts chapter 20. And so, but, but this is not news for the Philippians. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. So Paul, he's, he's told them before. He's warned them before. That seems to have been a typical pattern for the Apostle Paul is to point out the evil, faulty, uh, enemy-type behavior of those who were of the earthly city. He says their destiny is destruction. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Uh, that's the destiny of the many enemies of the cross of Christ. They've cut themselves off from the only source of salvation. And that is, of course, the salvation that comes through Christ Jesus. So there are citizens, and they serve as examples for other believers. But there are also enemies, and these are the citizens of the worldly city. Well, Paul, he concludes this chapter on a high note. And he points his Philippian siblings to that heavenly city. And, and he is looking to that heavenly city, and he invites his fellow Philippian believers, he invites even us today to look to the heavenly city. And he unpacks a bit of, of what it's going to be like at the end of time. But then he points out how the end actually impacts the now. The there and the then impacts the here and the now. Because notice how he writes this in verse 20. But our citizenship, not will be someday, hopefully, if we make it, in heaven. He says our citizenship is in heaven. It is a present reality that our citizenship is in heaven. Even now, we are enjoying the blessings and the benefits that go along with being citizens of that heavenly city. Blessings and benefits. Uh, well, how does Paul write it over in Ephesians? Uh, how many blessings are, are ours as citizens of the heavenly city? He says, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. How many are ours? Every single one of them. All of them that we could possibly need are ours. And so our citizenship is in heaven. But that citizenship not only brings with it all those blessings, it has a certain and requires a certain behavior of citizens. It's in contrast, first of all, with the mind that is set on earthly things. Here, Paul, we don't think like the world. 
our minds, our thinking is not like the earthly city. In fact, just a few verses later, when we get to chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Just earlier, back in chapter 1 and verse 27, you remember, here he exhorted his Philippian believers, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when we covered that verse, we noticed how that phrase actually is a single word, and it communicates this idea of behave as citizens. Uh, So that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and may uh, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This, This whole citizenship concept permeates the book of Philippians. It would have rang true for them as uh, citizens of Philippi who were actually citizens of the Roman Empire. It brought dual citizenship with it. But Paul says, even right now, our citizenship is in heaven. But that brings with it certain obligations, a certain kind of kingdom behavior that looks very different and is in fact nothing like the behavior of those who belong to the earthly city. Now, one thing specifically that is emphasized here is that we await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So right now, as citizens, we are, part of our behavior is waiting for the Savior to come from heaven. We are waiting for Him to come and to deliver us from this present world in which we live, though we're not of it, and bring us home to glory. We are saved in the present tense. We are saved right now. We are being saved even. But there is a full and final salvation that will be ours when King Jesus returns, when our Savior comes from heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. And one of the things that will happen, verse 21, is that the Lord Jesus will transform Our lowly body, that is literally what Paul writes here, is our body of humiliation. Our body of humiliation. And that refers to our present uh, mortal, carnal, broken by sin, subject to pain, subject to destruction, death body. The body that we now have, that is the body of our humiliation. We know about how our bodies uh, give out, they betray us, uh, sometimes even humiliate us because of the fact that they are our body of humiliation, our lowly body. But this body will be changed. Paul says it will be transformed to be like his glorious body. It will be literally like the body of his glory, Christ's glory. We don't know everything that goes into that glorious body that will be ours. But we do know that it will no longer be mortal, it will be immortal. It will no longer be carnal, it will be spiritual. That is, it will be powered by the Spirit. It will not be broken by sin, it will be heavenly. It will no longer be subject to destruction, it will be indestructible. 
and it will no longer be subject to death. It will be an undying body, fit for eternity with God. That's the body that our Lord will transform these lowly bodies into. And he's got the power to do it. He will do it by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Don't miss that. Our Lord, our Savior, is a powerful Lord and a powerful Savior. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. And he even subjects all things to himself. Nothing is outside of his lordship. Ooh, nothing is outside of his lordship. Man, there's... That has, <laughs> that has some applicational teeth, I believe, to the things that are going on in our world today. If all things are subjected by his power, what does that say about governing authorities that seek to impose certain rules, regulations, mandates about certain things? Does the Lordship of Christ have anything to speak to that particular situation? It's kind of on a large scale. What if this thing will crawl right into your lap? When you're sitting there on your device, scrolling through, and you want to start commenting, and you know, I'm I'm just going to share my mind. I, I, they need to know. They need to. Does the lordship of Christ impact what you like, what you share, what you comment, what you say, what you post in the realm of social media? This business of how everything, all things are subject. He himself has subjected all things by his power. I think the Lordship of Christ certainly does impact every single aspect of our life. This is the fundamental difference between the earthly city that does not recognize the Lordship of Christ, lives in rebellion to the Lordship of Christ, though they can't escape it and they live in his universe, and us, brothers and sisters, who live in the heavenly city, who have bowed the knee in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to live not in rebellion, but in obedience to King Jesus. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord. One more thing. This, our, our lowly bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. We, we do a number of uh, outreach funerals, funerals that we do for members of the community, for the, the uh, city, uh, people that come and contact us through a variety of avenues. We've done a lot of funerals for unbelievers. When an unbeliever dies, it is a tragedy for great lamentation and mourning. Loved ones weep. I've watched them weep over the casket, often uncontrollably, inconsolably, weeping for their family member. They're often in shock. They're unable to let their loved one go. And so, in one sense, that is the appropriate response for 
unbelievers who are mourning the loss of a fellow unbeliever. And the whole situation is comprised of people who are citizens of the earthly city who do not have hope. They are without hope because their loved one has died without a savior. They've lived their life in rebellion and rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore he is not their savior. An, a tremendous tragedy when that happens. But I tell you, it happens every single day. Every single day it happens. However, when a Christian dies, when a believer dies, it can be and ought to be a triumphant event. They finally hear more than just hearing the word of God and the upward call that comes through this, but they actually get to hear the upward call of God in Christ Jesus as earth gives way to heaven. And with angelic escort, they are ushered into the presence of the Lord whom they have loved, though they've never seen him, and now they get to see him face to face. Listen, don't get me wrong. Those left behind, we still mourn. We still grieve. But it's not like those who don't have hope. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. We have hope. We have the confident expectation that our Lord, our Savior, will return from heaven. And we look forward to that. And in that way, death can be victorious for the Christian. Two cities. Two radically, fundamentally different cities with two different trajectories and two different destinies. The earthly city composed of enemies of the cross of Christ who live in rebellion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That earthly city, it terminates in destruction. I didn't even get to talk about the word that Paul uses here for destruction and, and how you can explore that all throughout not just what Paul writes, but throughout the whole New Testament. And that word is always used in connection with eternity away from God. That's where the earthly city terminates. But the heavenly city that is composed of kingdom citizens who live in obedience to their king, their lord, their savior. That heavenly city terminates in resurrection, eternal life, the new body, and eternity with God. No wonder we have cause to rejoice, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what you have prepared for us, Heavenly Father. We catch only a glimpse of it. We touch merely the hem of the garment this morning. But Lord God, help us with the eyes of faith to see the path, the course that you have for us in this journey. Help us with the ears of faith to hear the upward call, your upward call in Christ Jesus. Enable us and empower us to rejoice 
in this journey while we live in the world but not of the world. This is our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen.